Why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I invite you to do that. Ephesians chapter 1. It's about uh, three-fourths, four-fifths way back in your Bible. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every Sunday, there should be one close by there in a seat rack if you want to pull it out and turn to page 814. You can find Ephesians 1 there. And uh, while you're turning there, you probably see from the banners last Sunday, even though uh, the weather didn't permit many of you to come, uh, we had a, a beginning of a series called In Christ. That's where we're going to be going the rest of this spring, In Christ. And so I want to talk to you today about what it means to be chosen. What it means to be chosen. Um, you probably, how do you like the t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, you know, it fits perfectly. Is actually made for Steve. <laughs> Just kidding. No, some of you were here last Sunday and Steve wore this. And we thought, how do we kind of illustrate what it's like to walk around with a broken identity, with an identity that's not necessarily the identity God wants us to have? So we thought about this, you know, like this shirt. Some of us, we wear our identity a lot like this shirt with different words on it. Maybe you can't see, but up here on the screen it says unloved, not good enough, weak, unworthy, unreliable, unsuccessful, pathetic, boring, failure, unwanted, powerless. And so we're thinking, you know, some of you, 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 still, you still think of yourself by something someone said to you years ago. Maybe even something that happened this week. And if we're not careful, that kind of thing can really stay a long time and, and affect how we understand what we're supposed to understand about ourselves. But then, uh, so uh, took this off here, and underneath, we see that what God has in, planned for us in Christ is a lot better. The words here on this uh, T-shirt, you can see up here, say, child of God, adopted, loved, redeemed, and forgiven, living heir, carrier of God's glory, dead to the power of sin, other words like that. And we want to understand as we study Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 this spring, we want to look at what is our God-given identity in Christ and how can we grow in that? In fact, here's a series sentence. Here's where we hope it's going. Uh, we want to be convinced, you know, you know, each of us, be convinced of who you are in Christ. So I'm going to take this off because it really doesn't fit that good. And uh, I'm going to... I'm going to talk to you about this idea today. Now, did, did, I know maybe not everybody had these on their seats, but if we can work together, I think there's enough for everybody. So um, did you all get this sticker on your seat? And if you didn't, you mind raising your hand, and maybe somebody down the row here can pass uh, one of those to you so we all have one. So I see a few hands here. If we can just team up here and just make sure if anybody sees some these different places, if we can share. If nothing else, we'll try and make sure you walk out with one before you see anybody? Okay. Anybody, anybody have one in this neighborhood over here, an extra one? Okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. Anybody else over here? You get one? Okay. So you notice what this says on here. It says, be convinced of who you are in Christ, studying Ephesians. Okay. Now, I want to just show you what I did with mine. These are stickers. I put it inside my Bible. I had a friend once that uh, that's what they used to do in their churches. They would put stickers like this in the Bible just to remind themselves of where they'd been and, and what they wanted to remember. So you may want to do that with your sticker. Uh, my wife actually put hers on her clothes uh, today. So again, that's for you. But here's what, here's what I want to just talk to you about this morning. I remember in my early 20s, I once was in a gathering 
where the pastor was being incredibly honest about his life. And he, he said, you know, even this many years after walking with the Lord, there are still times that the temptation and the pressures that I feel are so intense. And he says, a lot of times, by God's grace, I'm learning how not to succumb to those, how to fight those off. But he says, then there's times when I, I succumb. I, I fall to some of those things. And he says, man, in those moments, as if that's not bad enough, if that's not shameful enough, he says, what seems to happen, he says, this is the only way I can describe it. It's like the devil puts his foot on the small of my back and says, how could you have ever believed you're a Christian? I've never forgotten that picture. And I don't know about you, but like even this week, there are things that come to my mind of failure as a leader, relational failures with my family, moral failures of the past, and sometimes even of the present. And when those things come to my mind, I go, how could I ever call myself a Christian? I mean, there's no way. My identity's a mess. And, how, you know, I don't know if you thought about this, but it's a battle. It's a battle even for the most seasoned Christians. And it even was a battle Jesus had to face. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see this morning is that we can live with a mistaken or stolen identity. We can live with a mistaken or stolen identity. Now, Jesus didn't, but he still had to fight a battle. And out to the right, I've put Matthew 3, 16 through 17, and then Matthew 4, verses 3 and 6. And I'll just recap it for you. Here's what happened. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts it by being baptized. Now, when he starts it by being baptized like that, he had a baptism that was incredible. Now, the only person that's ever walked this earth that didn't need to be baptized was Jesus. But he said to John the Baptist, baptize me because I want to fulfill all righteousness and I want people to follow me. I'll go first. He comes up out of the water. The Bible says the Holy Spirit landed on his shoulder in the form of a dove. And then a voice from heaven, from God the Father, said this, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. Now, that's a commendation. That's an identity, right? You know what happens immediately after that? Chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is taken into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And the devil comes to him. Jesus has not eaten for 40 days because he's in this intense preparation time. He's in this intense focusing on God for the days that would begin his ministry. And there in the wilderness, the evil one comes to him. And guess what his strategy is? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, whew, and Jesus has to fight off those blows. And he does it by saying, it is written, it is written. It is written. And he quotes the scriptures with power and octane because he knows what's still true even though the evil one's messing with his head. Friends, you and I will face a similar battle and we want the letter of Ephesians to be part of what's in our arsenal when that kind of thing happens. We want to make sure we base it on what is written and base it on what is still true. So if you're following along, here's what I hope you'll, you'll see today is that discovering our true identity begins with God, not with us. Discovering our true identity begins with God, not with us. Now, I don't know if you were here last Sunday. 
I don't know if you listened online, but if you didn't get a chance to hear Steve's message, I would highly recommend it. Not only because it really helped set the stage for the whole series, a person in my life group uh, texted me this week and just said, that was one of the most powerful, helpful messages I have ever heard. I'm so thankful for that, and it may be true for you as well, but I urge you to listen to that. You know, one of the things that Steve said there is he says, we believe lies about ourselves because we don't know our identity, and we must know our identity in Christ to live the Christian life, and so that's what we're going to be doing in these days ahead, but just know what I hope you see this morning, like we just said, is that discovering our true identity begins with God, not with us. What do I mean? I mean that a lot of times, the reason we also get fudged up with our identity is because we're looking from our perspective. We're going by how we feel first. And I'm not saying that how we see things or how we feel is meaningless. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying is it's not the best place to start. There's a better place to start. And so I want to just pray before we look at this, and then let's just look at Ephesians 1, 4, 11 through 12, and we'll unpack it. Okay, let's pray. Now, Lord, every time I preach, remind me that no way could I do more by any persuasive message than your spirit can do in a nanosecond. You are the one that reveals, illumines, and helps us understand. So we depend on you. I pray now as we look at these revealed things from the scripture that you would open our eyes and help us understand them so that we can battle whatever comes against our God-given identity found in Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so let me read verse uh, 4 and then 11 and 12. Uh, I'm reading from the New International Version if you want to follow along. Here's what it says. In fact, I'm going to read verse 3 just to show you where Steve was last week and tie it together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him. That phrase, in him or in Christ, you're going to see a lot. And that means he chose us in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in his sight. And then there's these two words that look like they hang in most translations, in love. Now, most translators will tell you they're not sure which part to put that with. The phrase that comes before to be holy and blameless in love. In other words, that holiness at its greatest, when you and I are holy, is we become loving like Christ loves, or does it mean in love he predestined us? Translators say it can go either way, but just know that it shapes the way that he chose us the way he predestined us. He did it, not just mechanically, not randomly. He did it in love, okay? Drop down to verse 11. We see again, this brings back this theme of being chosen. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, let me uh, just mention something here. I, uh, the, a few couple weeks ago, I taught the membership class in the afternoon, and as the class was finishing, one of the men that had been part of the class, uh, we were saying goodbye, and he told me that early the next morning, he was going to have to drive up to Minnesota. He's a consultant for gas line, uh, pipeline, uh, gas pipelines, and so he uh, got up there, and a few days later, he emailed me with a picture and as a picture, I mean, you can imagine that week. I mean, it was cold enough in Illinois. Can you imagine Minnesota? And so he, he emailed me and he said, uh, this is a picture 
of where the Mississippi River begins. And all I saw was snow, kind of like on top of a lake. So I thought, i got to Google this. I never knew that the Mississippi River started in Minnesota. See, I, I grew up most of my life in Illinois, so I've seen the Mississippi River in Quincy, St. Louis, different places, and, I, you know, by the Quad Cities. I've seen it, and so I always kind of thought it started in Illinois. That was my perspective. But actually, it started way north, so I started Googling, and I found out that in Clearwater County, Minnesota, at Itasca State Park, Lake Itasca, is where most believe that the Mississippi River begins. Interesting. Now, I mention that because a lot of times when I think about my identity, I start with where I am, and God wants me to understand that actually I got to go back to the source to really understand that. I got to go further north. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1 is he's giving a picture describing God's work of salvation in our lives from God's perspective, God's angle. But we're not used to that. We're used to mainly seeing from our own angle. We're used to seeing from our own viewpoint. So Paul says, I got to help you here. You want to go back to the source? Let me show you where it comes from. Trace it all the way back. You got to go north. You got to go north because that's where it comes from. That's really helped me. Now, when we think about God's viewpoint, let me tell you one more story before we talk about how Paul does that. There was a pastor who is 6'4". I'm not talking about Steve. And there's a pastor 6'4", and he was borrowing a car one day, and he had to make a long journey, and he had a passenger that was 5'2". I'm not talking about me. <laughs> Give me at least five more inches. Anyway, so this guy's riding in the car, and he's in this borrowed car, and it's a long trip, and they got a certain time frame, so they got to get back. But meanwhile, the gas gauge is just like going down, 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 down really fast. So finally, as they're getting far enough into the trip, the 5-2 passenger says to him, he says, the pointer on the gas gauge is below, Z, is below empty. And he goes, no. The pointer on the gas gauge is at an eighth of a tank. And the passenger, 5-2 guy, says, no. The pointer is below empty. And he says, no, I'm telling you, it's one-eighth full. What do you think happened next? Right then, the car shutters and stops. It's completely out of gas. So this six-foot-four pastor guy push, pulls back there in the seat, and he realizes that the 5'2 guy had the right angle. Now, here's the reason I'm telling you this. If you and I have the wrong angle, we won't live the same way. We won't be able to do the things that God wants us to do. He wants us to see from God's angle, God's viewpoint. So how does Paul help us do that? I want to just make four observations about these verses, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. And guess what? As a pastor, you're going to love this. This week, as I try to think about sharing these observations, my observations all had the letter P in it. So isn't that just like a pastor to do something like that? But I'm not trying to be clever. It just happened to be that. So here we go. Are you ready? Look for these P words. Here we go. First, notice that God's choice is previous to our choosing him. Notice that God's choice of us is previous to our choosing him. For he chose us in him when? Before the creation of the world. Read, if you would, the New Living Translation that I've listed in that first gray box. Let's read that together. Even before he made the world, 
God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And so he just wants us to know, look, hey, before you ever took a breath, before you were even an idea in your parents' minds, before the world even existed, before the very first day, sunlight of day ever happened, I had plans. This word is very decisive. He chose. He decided. God is way out ahead of us. And one of the things about that is that that's very, very, very bothersome to some people. Because the question becomes is, well, does that mean that we're just robots? Does that mean we're just automatons? Does that mean that now it doesn't matter? Is everything so predetermined? Is everything fatalistic? Oh, well, no. You're going to see that this is a glorious, mysterious truth. But it's still true. He made a choice previous to ours. You got to go all the way back to the source. You got to go north. And so Jesus once kind of straightened out his disciples about this. If you look up on the screen, John 15, 16, remember they followed him? Look what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. It's not that they didn't choose him. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't get the order wrong. You didn't choose me first. Remember, I chose you. And I had a plan in my mind when I chose you. I wasn't just playing around. I'm not just messing with you. I chose you so you could have a fruitful life and you would bear fruit. You would have a purpose in life. Amazing thing, the previousness of this. I've shared this with some of you before, but when I was out in Iowa as a younger pastor, There were so many things I'd never done before, so many things that were so new. This congregation was incredibly gracious. But one of the things that's always been part, you know, of my responsibility is to meet with different people at times when they're trying to look to God for counsel, to try and see what his wisdom might be for some of the things they're going through. So uh, one day I met with a lady who was having an incredible heart ripping experience with her stepdaughter. I mean, I loved both of these people, but they were in tough, tough times because the stepdaughter was making some really foolish choices and the consequences were massive. So as I'm listening, I'm just going, oh God, oh God, oh God, what do you want Janelle to understand? And so right across the tick of my mind came this thought as we sat in the quiet after she'd poured out story. It's like, share with her what that phrase you've been thinking about lately. And what I'd done is I read a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God, a little book. And in it, he quotes this German Christian named Friedrich von Hugo. I'd never heard of the guy before. And he had just four words, four words. Here it is. God is always previous. I said to Janelle, Janelle, I'm not exactly sure why I'm sharing this with you, but I just sense I'm supposed to tell you, God is always previous. And why don't we just think about this situation you're going through with your stepdaughter and think about what that means. That means that this hasn't taken him by surprise. That means that he's way out ahead of you. That means that what he may have in store or prepared for you could be absolutely what you need. God is always previous. That means you can go to sleep at night knowing he's still working He's still doing things. God is always previous. Now, I've shared lots of different thoughts with people over the years, and I'm sure most of them have been forgotten because that's just life. We can't remember everything. But this lady, every time I saw her from then on, in an email, in person, whatever, she'd go, 
God is always previous. A number of years later, after I had been here, she was dying. And she wanted me to know that even as she was dying, God is always previous was important to her. I went back and I was part of her funeral and I stood in front of people and said, God is always previous. Friends, he chose us before the world was created. He's way out ahead of us. Second thing is the preposition of God's choice in Christ. The preposition of God's choice in Christ. From time to time, I have people say, you know, you've read the Bible a lot of different times. Is there anything that stands out to you? And you may be surprised by this, but here's what I've said to some people. I'm totally into prepositions. I don't know about you, but in English class, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have, but I do remember one thing. I do remember that this idea of preposition, these tiny little words that are connecting words, and sometimes they seem so insignificant, <clears throat> but the more I get to know about prepositions in the Bible, the more they mean to me. I think I've told you before that one of the greatest discoveries I've made in the last few years with Christ is to know that more than doing things for him, he wants me to do things with him. Prepositions, for, with, to, from, through, all those different words. So notice what the phrase is that we get our series uh, theme from, in Christ. In Christ. Now, the word in is also used of Christ in. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Last week, Steve said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's an awesome thing. And I want you to know that six or seven times in the New Testament, the phrase Christ in occurs. But 164 times, the phrase in Christ, or in him, meaning in Christ, occur. And 36 of them are here in Ephesians. That means throughout this series, you're going to be seeing this phrase again and again and again. Paul just goes, do you realize what God has done in Christ? Do you realize what you have in Christ? Wow. And that's a phenomenal thing, because see, if it's about Christ in us only, then our world gets real small, it's short, little version, but if we are now in Christ, we step into a world that is massive. What Christ has done is an amazing thing. And so uh, one person has said it's like this. If I take the message notes like this and I put them in my Bible, then wherever this Bible goes, the message notes go. When God put us in Christ, he put us into him in such a way that when he died, we died that when he rose again, we rose again. That when he conquered sin and death, he can now do that in us. That he has a future that is now our future. Amazing. In Christ. I love prepositions. And you'll notice out to the right that that phrase, in Christ, is listed all those times in these verses of 3 through 14. Third thing, notice the pronouns of God's choice. The pronouns it's a virtual English lesson, isn't it? Notice the pronouns of God's choice. Now, in the 8 o'clock serve, I didn't get this right, and they were very gracious to me. I'm going to try and get it right so you don't have to be as gracious to me, okay? But here's what I got. You see those three little places to fill in? I actually have <clears throat> two sets of three, one on top of each other. So I'll tell you what the top one is first, and then I'll give you what you can put in those blanks, okay? So here we go. For the top part of that, over those three blanks, here's what I put. He... 
us, him. He, us, him. Notice verse four. He chose us in him. God was doing some connecting there, these pronouns. But then notice, here's the words I put in those three blanks. Us, we, our. Us, we, our. What do I mean? Jeff, where are you going? Many of us, we think our identity is just our individual identity. In the United States, one of the great things that the founding, you know, members of our country recovered was the preciousness of the individual. It's one of the greatest things about our country. Individual freedom, all those things. Isn't that amazing? The problem is, is that you can OD on that. And now we have individualism that has been exalted over our everything else. And therefore, we think that it's all about me. We think it all about the individual. And that's crazy. And what it does is it makes us smaller people when we think like that. But what the Lord wants us to know is that when he chose us in Christ, his plans for us were huge. His plans for our identity were to be bigger than ourselves. First with Christ, but then also with every other person that would be connected with him in Christ. Therefore, he wants to take us from I, me, my, mine, and he wants to move us to us, we, our. In my message notes, I don't know if you want to do this, but in the first grade box, I circled the word us that's found there in that that line there. God loved us and chose us in Christ. It doesn't just say God chose me. It says God chose us. Then notice down in verse 12 in that second grade box, I circled the words in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Remember, even when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, he's saying, you're not just an individual. Do not reduce yourself to that. Your identity now is that when you've been in Christ, you become part of his living body, the church. Therefore, you're bigger. And and let me say this, that at the end of chapter two, we'll look at this more later, but the last verse of chapter two, let me just read it to you. It says, and in him... You two are being built together to become a temple, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are living stones that are being built, connected together. We're part of something more than just individuals. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm standing in this room singing, I can't believe I get to belong to Christ and with so many of you. It is one of the greatest privileges of my life, and I want to continue to think of others and not just myself. But this is the pronoun is amazing. The last thing in this section is this. The, notice the purpose of God's choice. The purpose of God's choice to be holy and glorify him. To be holy and glorify him. Notice it says that there in verse 4, to be holy and without fault in his eyes, and the New International to be holy and blameless in his sight. And some of you said, you just lost me. That sounds about as exciting. I mean, holy. I don't know what words come to your mind. For many of us, the word holy has fallen on hard times. Many of us picture people that are uptight, holy rollers, holier than thou, and that word has just gotten so wrecked. But the word holy is a dynamic, powerful word. God is holy. God is living, and he is powerful, and he is mighty, and he says, you shall be holy because I am holy. Not, you shall, you know, be a dud. 
some boring person that people want to run from? No, you shall be holy in the sense that you shall be whole. There will be a dynamic to your life. There will be a sacred calling on your life. And then also that word for blameless or without fault throws us because we go, I don't know, I'm not without fault. I'm not blameless. No, he's saying you aren't that, but that's what I made you in Christ. That's what I'm making you. And the idea is that it was used to the animal sacrifices when they were blameless and without fault, they were offered to God. What he's saying is, I chose you so you could have a role in my redemptive history in the world. You're going to have a purpose that is dynamic and wholesome and powerful and beautiful. Holy is beautiful in God's sight. And it is when you see someone that's fully alive in God, they are holy. Oh, man, powerful. One of the ways people say, how can I know if I'm chosen? Hey, do you have a desire to be holy even though you didn't before? Do you have a desire to offer yourself to God and learn his way? If you do, that is every evidence that you are chosen by God because you and I wouldn't be like that on our own. So this last, last thing I want you to see is just this identity part after that, after the purpose. Let's talk about that. Because, you know, I don't know, by now, I don't know if any of you are going, well, I don't, I don't know if I really like this. You know, this, this is sometimes called the doctrine or the teaching of election, predestination, that kind of stuff. And so some of you may still be sitting here going, this is a drag. This means that everything's settled, everything's done, therefore there's no room for a free will. The exact opposite is true. This energizes, this motivates self-will, I mean free will more than ever. Let me, let me explain. Tim Keller tells this great story. I can't do much better than this, so let me read it to you. He says, here's a lion. You put in front of the lion a bowl of piping hot Quaker oats for breakfast on the right hand. And then on the left hand, you put a piece of raw meat, and you give him the choice to choose a thousand times. Now, every zoologist will tell you that the lion is fully capable of choosing either the piping hot Quaker oats, but he will never, ever, ever, ever choose the Quaker oats. Does this mean he doesn't have free will? No, he's carnivorous. It's his nature not to want that. It's his nature to want meat. When the Bible says you cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws you, that doesn't mean you don't have a free will. No, it means that you don't want to choose him and you can't want him unless he opens your eyes and mine. See, what's so great is that God, knowing when he made us that we wouldn't necessarily want him unless he first chose us, in love chose us so that we would want him. And it's an amazing thing when I think about it and it's humbling. These are mysteries that I don't fully understand but I want to take hold of in my life. I had a friend when I was uh, younger who mentored me, and he said he grew up out in L.A., and he lived just blocks from the LAX airport. And he said so every night, planes, he could hear planes flying over. And he had grown up in a church that taught him that you can lose your salvation once you trust Christ. You can become unchosen. So every night as he heard the planes flying over, he kept thinking, is there something I've done today or this week that I've either forgotten to ask God to forgive me or that I haven't dealt with because if the plane crashes into my house that was his fear as a kid I won't go to heaven I won't be right with God he said my brother eventually showed me in the Bible Ephesians 1 4 
for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. And he says, I slept like a baby. Once I knew that, I realized that I wasn't chosen by what I do and I can't be unchosen by what I do. Some people go, well, that just makes you irresponsible then. Now you just, just live any old way you want. No, when a person really gets this, now they go, he chose me for a purpose. And even though I may not perfectly live that out, I am motivated to discover and live out that purpose and I want to do that. And my friend, you got, I got to tell you, he lived out of a different motivation rather than fear, shame, and guilt. Now he lived out of a love and a want to that was completely different. And that can happen to you and me. So just a couple observations. First, the identity of being chosen in Christ removes any basis for superiority or self-boasting. It removes any basis for superiority or self-boasting. Some people think that when you say, hey, you're chosen in Christ, that's an arrogant thing to say. It's the exact opposite, especially when you know that he chose you without necessarily any merit of your own part. Notice what 1 Corinthians 1 says here. This is a powerful set of verses. It says, you know, think about who you are and, and what you were when God, you know, came into your life. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Can we read that last phrase again? So that no one may boast before him. No, notice it goes on. It says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when a person begins to understand, Jesus, in you, I have a brand new life. I have a brand new identity. I never would be that good. I could never be like that, but in you I am. That's an awesome thing. Second thing is, is that our security, purpose, and joy depend on it. If you don't know you're chosen in Christ, then you don't have the security, purpose, and joy like my friend did that lived next to LAX. You don't necessarily, you walk around all the time and you live out of this insecurity. Have you ever seen people that live out of an insecure identity? I've done that before. It's not pretty. We do things differently, but when you have a sense of deepening security where you know, I remember one lady saying, God took care of my biggest problem when he placed me in Christ. Now, everything I may face, God has done something to establish a, a settled, unshakable foundation in my life. Christ is my foundation, and I can know a security. I can know that purpose, and I can even know a joy. I like how one person says it. Christians can have the greatest sense of humor. We can actually laugh at ourselves because of this teaching. Otherwise, we take ourselves too seriously. But now we can go, can you believe he chose me? Unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. And there's a freedom in life that begins to happen. Some of you say, Jeff, I don't know how you can be so honest sometimes in your sermons. You know how I can be so honest? Christ. God chose me in Christ. I didn't deserve that. 
but it's the life that I'm so thankful for. We're going to come to chapter 2, verse 10 a little bit, but look at this verse as well. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It occurs to me right now, as I have the privilege of talking with you about these amazing things, that if you would have told me when I was a teenager that this would ever be something I would get to experience with you, I wouldn't have been able to see that far. But God could see that far. And I cannot get over the privilege it is to learn these things with you. Praise his name. So how do we apply this? I mean, how does this stuff become part of us? How does it become like those shirts that I was wearing at the beginning so that now when we walk around, this becomes more and more a part of our identity? We all know that unless God opens our eyes, we won't understand this. We need his help. But I want to give you one practical way, especially if you're a believer, of how you can let this thing become more a part of you. And here's, here it is. If you follow along, learning to be convinced. Remember, we want to be convinced of who we are in Christ. First, notice that beginning to end, Verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1 are one unbroken sentence of praise. One unbroken sentence of praise. I'm not real smart in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, so trust me, this isn't because I'm so smart, but the classes that I took, you know, the English is not one unbroken. There's lots of periods and commas and stuff like that. But in the Greek language, this is one unbroken sentence of praise. Now, let me say this. When I was in English class, in high school, we had a teacher that put the fear of God in all of us that any time we wrote a run-on sentence, we would get a zero, which was worse than an F. Paul writes an, a run-on sentence, and he doesn't get a zero. You know why? Because <laughs> it's in the Bible. And because, why is he doing that? He's caught up. He's trying to say, do you understand where the source of your relationship with God comes from, if you trace it all the way back, you're not going to believe this. God did something that all I can do is praise him for it. All I can do is say, you're unbelievable. And so praise, verse 3, he starts out, praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And what he's doing is practicing the very thing I want to suggest to you. The way this becomes part of you is for you, just like Jesus did with the scripture to say, Lord, this doesn't seem true of me. I know me. But if you say that by your grace, I'm chosen in Christ, then I accept that. And I want to begin to praise you for that because as I praise you, something changes. And what I want to show you is this. Praising God first for these blessings seals them in our hearts. It seals them in our hearts. I don't know how to explain this, but the more that I begin to praise God for something that he says is true, the more it becomes part of me. The more it fixes and attaches itself to me so that it can't be easily moved. And when you and I do that, you and I can begin to know these truths. Friday morning, you know, because I was studying this passage, not because I'm so like super hyper spiritual, but I was praying with Trish before I left for work with her. And I just put my arm around her and I said, okay, God, God, even though it doesn't seem like it's true sometimes, even though it doesn't feel like it's true sometimes, you said that you chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. So as we step into this day, we praise you for doing something like that for us and show us how to live in that truth. Man, that you can do that. The next thing is praising God reorders and readies us to live out his purpose. 
Praising God, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm like completely out of sorts, sometimes I just need to stop and say, God, right now I just need to praise you. My focus is on myself. My focus is on my situation. I need to look north. I need to come back to the source of my life. I need to come back to the source of my identity, and it is you. And as I praise you, I pray you'll reorder my life and ready me for your service. Please, God. And he does. And the last thing I want you to see is, will I humble myself and let God be God in my life? Will I humble myself and let God be God in my life? This comes from a conversation that a lady once had with a pastor after a service. She said, for 20 years I've been studying this, this uh, whole idea of election and choosing and predestination, and it's just turned me inside out. She said, but during your message today, all of a sudden the most simple thought came to me. Will I humbly let God be God? Peter was once standing on the beach with Jesus after he'd been restored. You know, he denied him three times. Jesus graciously restores him and says, follow me. And then he says, Peter, I need to tell you, you're going, you're going to die a death similar to mine. That's a pretty, pretty sobering message, right? Wouldn't you agree? And so Peter decides to change the conversation. So he says, thanks, Lord. What about him? And the Lord looks at him and says, what is that to you? You follow me. Translated, none of your business. It's too big for you. Trust me. You follow me. So when you and I praise God, we are choosing to believe him, even if no one else does, even if it doesn't feel like it's true at the time, and in Romans 4, 20 and 21 says this, no distrust, in fact, we have it, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. You know, he was going to be having a child in his old age, but he grew strong in his faith as he did what, friends? As he gave glory to God, fully convinced, there's that word, that God was able to do what he'd promised. So here's what I want to do. I want to close by praising God together. Don't feel obligated, but if it's in your heart, Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to sing a song we've sung before that'll get us looking north. That'll remind us the source of our life. And this week, I'm going to be praying that God works in your identity and redeems it so you can walk around knowing that you've been chosen in Christ if you've trusted him. And if you haven't, if you're interested, you can know he's working in your life. Here's the song. Oh, the glory, if you know it, sing it, of your presence, we, your temple, let's stand, give you reverence, come and rise from your rest. And be blessed by our praise as we glory in your embrace. 
presence now fills this place. I just bow your head. And in the quiet there, what do you need to say to God? What do you need? What is he prompting in you? Just take a moment and honor that. And now, God, I want to pray for every person that's been told that they were a mistake, an accident. Would you reveal to them that through what you've done, they can be chosen in Christ? Would you show those people that have been hated and rejected and just ridiculed, would you show them that there is a purpose and a hope for them in Christ? Would you do what only you can do? For Jesus' sake, amen. There's always people that are standing down front to pray. Let me say one thing. Chuck and the teams, they're going to sing a song. If you have time and you want to linger, feel free. This song's awesome about our identity, but if not, just know you're dismissed and go in the identity that God has given you in Christ.